Tonight's reading is from John chapter 20, starting to read at verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them, that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word is living and alive and speaks to us even today. And thank you for the incredible truths contained within this story, that you are alive. Pray that as we look at your word together this evening, as we continue this journey through gardens, as we stop and pause in this garden this evening, pray that you would open your word afresh again to us. Pray that you would speak to each of us this evening and pray that we will be lost in wonder and lost in awe at all you have done for us. For you are good, you are holy, anointed, risen and exalted and we love you. Amen. So as as Dan has mentioned, we're, we're in a series here at this evening service looking at key moments in the scriptural narrative, the scriptural arc that take place in gardens. 
And I hope if you've been here over the last few weeks, you've managed to catch um, this incredible way that these gardens are woven throughout the story of God and the story of God's people. It's been a beautiful, beautiful thing to follow over the last few weeks. I'm also aware that some of you haven't been here over the last few weeks. Let me just recap for you and for all of us where we've been on this journey so far so we can understand where we find ourselves this evening. We started, of course, where else would you start? In Eden, that garden where it all began, where God and his children walked side by side in the beautiful cool of the evening. And then it all fell apart. We know the story. We know what happens. After Eden, we went to the tabernacle, this garden of sorts full of parallels, with Eden full of references and pictures of Eden, but not itself quite Eden. It could never be like that at that stage. But still with a tent, a dwelling place where the Lord comes and lives in the midst of his people. So despite Eden and despite all that happened there, even in the tabernacle story, we see God stepping down to dwell among his people. We've then been to Gethsemane where Jesus agonizingly bows to the will of his father. We've been to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where Jesus breathed his final breath. There are then two gardens left for us to visit, two places for us to pause, and tonight we find ourselves in the penultimate garden, the garden, we might say, of resurrection, of hope, of life, of victory. I'm aware, very aware, that um, the last sermon I preached in this series started with a quote from um, Tolkien. You might not remember that, um, but I remember that. Um, and, and I'm really conscious that doing so again is a little bit deja vu and might be a little bit cliche. But actually, he's got a lovely line about the resurrection that I think really applies to what we see in this passage. This is what he says. He says that with the resurrection, with the dawning of this third day, and with the resurrection of Jesus, everything sad is coming untrue. Such a lovely line that everything sad is coming untrue. And actually, the reason I use that, and the reason I'm running the risk of being critiqued as using only one source in my sermons, is actually because I think that is exactly what is going on here in this story. That with the resurrection of Jesus, with this wonderful Easter passage, as Mary comes to see Jesus as risen, as holy, as anointed, and as exalted... We see the beginning here of everything sad becoming untrue. Because since Eden, of course, God's people have been exiled. We saw that at the beginning of this series. They have been cast out of that first garden. And they are living in a broken, fractured relationship with God. Still a relationship, but not the one they were designed for. Not the one they were created for. And yet, God has never abandoned his people Despite everything they did, despite all their attempts, all their best attempts to push him away, God never abandons his people. And I think as we've seen in this series, he constantly and again and again reaches down towards us to speak over us words of hope and of love and of promise, reminding us that he will never leave us or forsake us. This, um, this never giving up love crescendos, of course, in the birth of Jesus. The Son of God who steps down into darkness to live among us. God moving into the neighborhood. And as we've seen over the last two weeks in two more gardens, Jesus, of course, bows to the will of his Father. He approaches the cross and he suffers for our sakes. 
is forsaken by his father in order that we don't have to be. And now we find ourselves in this garden. It is the cool of the early morning before the sun has risen. It's the first day of the new week. And what we begin to see in this passage is everything sad coming untrue. And I think we see that in this, this wonderful reversing of some of the impacts of the exile from Eden. There are parallels in this story of that original garden of Eden. And we see a beautiful thing because we see God beginning to reverse some of the impact, the aftermath of Eden. And we see it even in this passage, even in the early hours of this, the third day, when Jesus comes back to walk in the garden once again. Of course, there's one more garden to go. This isn't quite the end of the story. And in many ways, what we see in this garden still points us towards that one final garden. And to help us see this, I want us to look just at three aspects of this garden encounter. Three things that point to this idea of everything sad becoming untrue. Three reversals of the aftermath of Eden that emphasize the incredible truth that because of the resurrection of Jesus, nothing can be the same again. The first of these is almost obvious, and you will not need me to tell it to you, but the first of these is the transition from death to life. It is, of course, this story where we see the resurrected Jesus. This is one of the great Easter passages read every year around Easter time. And it starts with that familiar picture of Mary approaching the tomb. The sun has yet to rise. It is dark and cool. The air is silent. And Mary approaches the tomb in order to anoint Jesus' dead body. And as she walks slowly toward that tomb, full of the memories of the last few years and of the last few days, she stops in her tracks, for the stone has been rolled away. Mary's immediate reaction, of course, is shock, concern, so much so that she turns and she runs. She runs to Peter and to the other disciple, as he's named in the Bible, although the probability is that it's actually John who wrote this gospel, who is the other disciple. She turns and she runs, and she runs to share the news. Now, it was not uncommon in those days for grave robberies to happen. In fact, it was an incredibly common occurrence at that time for the body of the dead to be stolen and taken away for profit. So there was a real possibility that when Mary sees that the stone is rolled away, her first thought is that Jesus' body has been taken. It has been stolen. And so perhaps her initial reaction is fear that this has happened. Not only have they taken Jesus in life, they have now also taken him in death. There is no body left for her to anoint. What is clear is that Mary doesn't seem for a minute to even hold the thought that Jesus could have been resurrected. Resurrection is just not a thought Mary is prepared to entertain at this stage. She expects to see a dead body. She expects to anoint that dead body. And when she sees the stone is rolled, she accounts for it very logically. Someone has taken it. Resurrection is not logical for Mary. So it's not an option. But of course, the wonderful thing about the resurrection of Christ is that it is not logical. 
death up until now in the scriptural narrative has been the end. It is the aftermath of Eden. And death is very much a full stop for people up to this point. A consequence of Adam and Eve's temptation, it has been the universal mark of a broken relationship between God and his children. Brought into the world by the first Adam, a reality that none could escape from until now. Because of course, and we've seen this over these last few weeks, Jesus comes, the Bible says, as the second Adam. He comes as the second Adam in order to do what that first Adam could not do. We saw Jesus agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw him hanging on the cross in Golgotha. He did the will of his Father right to the end. And so while death comes into the world through the first Adam, Life now comes into the world through the second Adam, Jesus. And in this garden, death is bursting onto the scene. His conquering of the grave and with it, the declaration that death has lost its sting. Remember, of course, this is not quite the end of the story. This is not the final garden. And so the death of our bodies, the death of our lives here is still something we face as a reality. But because of Jesus, we now hold to hope of life after death, to eternal life, to life in all its fullness, both now here on earth, in our bodies here, and also in the life that is to come. And of course, it is no mere coincidence that it is in another garden that the risen Jesus, the second Adam, appears to Mary, proclaiming to her, and indeed to all of us, that life has triumphed over death. And there's a wonderful moment in this encounter, a beautiful moment with Mary, and it comes in, um, it comes in verse 15, if you've still got your Bibles open. I think this is such an incredible moment. Mary, her eyes are red and puffy from weeping. She thinks the body is gone. She cannot entertain the concept of resurrection. And from behind her, she hears a voice. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Those questions, of course, take us right back to Eden, don't they? Where are you, God says to Adam and Eve. But this time the question is full of compassion, of grace, of forgiveness, of love and of hope. And then there is a wonderful moment where Mary turns around and she thinks that Jesus is the gardener. The penny hasn't dropped yet, then here it is. In this series, looking at garden encounters, when we've remembered that we were created in a garden, that we were exiled from the garden, that we have met God in gardens all along the way, and we are living for the future garden city, we come face to face in this garden with the gardener himself. Whenever I've read this story before, I have assumed this was Mary having a case of mistaken identity. He's just the gardener. In a sense, that is right. Jesus, of course, isn't the physical gardener of that garden. But actually, she's bang on the money when she says that Jesus is the gardener. He is, of course, the good gardener, the second gardener, as he is the second Adam, because the first gardener, the first Adam, couldn't do the job, didn't do the job. And so it took the second Adam, the second gardener, to come and to bring life over death. And so when Mary looks at Jesus and thinks he is the gardener, she's not wrong. 
It's not the whole picture. But she is actually looking at the good gardener. It's the good gardener then who calls Mary by her name. And it is at that point when her name is used, when she is spoken to at the core of her very being, that she gets exactly who he is. Jesus Christ has risen. Life has been brought back into the world. Life has conquered death. Death has lost its sting because Jesus Christ has been resurrected. The good gardener, the second Adam, has conquered the grave and he stands and he calls Mary by name and proclaims that he is risen. Everything sad is coming untrue. Death to life, that's the first shift. The second is the shift from hopelessness to hope. I don't know if you picked it up from the passage when we heard it read or when you sat and read it to yourself, but at the start of this story, there is a real sense of hopelessness. We know, don't we, where we are in the narrative. We know Jesus has died. We know he has been buried. And we know those who followed him and loved him are questioning what it was all about. That's why Mary comes and sees the empty tomb and just assumes his body's been stolen, rubbing salt into an already aching wound. She goes and tells Peter and and John, as I've said, and then they run towards the tomb. Well, why do they run? It may well be out of desperation and hopelessness. He's gone, Mary says to them. He died on Friday, and now his body is gone. And then Peter and John get there, and they assess the tomb. They see the linen. They look in, and then they walk in to this sacred space where Jesus' body once was. Now the text does say that John saw and believed. John looks and he sees the linen and it says he saw and believed. So John, maybe John did begin to get this. Maybe John looked and maybe he had that kernel of faith that said, I don't think the body has gone. But it certainly starts off with a real sense of hopelessness. And Mary's hopelessness, of course, continues. She hasn't got there yet. But the first sign that hopelessness has been replaced by hope comes when Mary finally enters the tomb and she sees two angels sitting where Jesus' body once lay. Again, we can't help but be taken back to the Eden story when after God's people had been cast out, two cherubim were placed on the gates of that garden to stop humanity coming back in. And throughout Israel's history, indeed, the entrance to the most holy place has been guarded by depictions of these two cherubim ever since, a constant reminder of the separation between man and God. But in this garden, Mary encounters two angels who no longer block the way. Instead, they sit where Jesus' body once was and offer what I think are words of comfort. Why are you crying? They, of course, know what Mary does not yet know. But this is a question of compassion. Although Mary can't see it yet, hope is rising in this garden, just as the sun is rising in this garden. Of course, that hope rises further when Mary finally comes to recognize Jesus in his resurrected body, when she hears the voice of the good gardener call her by name, and she sees that Jesus has indeed risen from the grave, that everything has changed, that life has beaten death. And there is yet more hope to come, as Jesus says to Mary in verse 17, that he is yet to ascend to his Father. 
He has resurrected. He is back. He is there in bodily form. But he will one day, he says, ascend to his father. And in the process of him ascending to sit at the right hand of the father, he takes with him the pain and the brokenness of the suffering of humanity. The resurrected, ascended Jesus knows what it was to live some of our lives the brokenness and the pain that comes with them. And so when he speaks of being ascended, he speaks of taking that brokenness up with him. There is hope dripping through this conversation. Mary is just beginning to comprehend this. And who can blame her for this is a lot to take in. She is just beginning to see what this means. That we are invited into a living, life-giving relationship with the God who bears our scars, shares our pain, and feels our weaknesses. Hope is well and truly rising in this garden. And finally, the third shift is that God's people are not sent out of this garden in shame, but sent out rejoicing in the news that Jesus Christ has risen. The final element of Adam and Eve's exile from Eden is their sending out. The Lord drove them out, the text says. He drove them out. He made them go. And the last thing they would have experienced in Eden was the sound of the gates shutting behind them. They were sent out of Eden. God's people were cast out, driven out of Eden. But at the end of this story, Mary has her own experience of being sent out. But this time with a command that is full of joy. Go and said to my brothers, the disciples, Jesus says, and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary's joy at this point is uncontained, and she summarizes her feelings pretty succinctly as she leaves the garden, saying, I have seen the Lord. This is not ascending out of shame, but ascending out of joy to proclaim the good news that comes in this garden, that death has indeed been beaten by life, that darkness has been quashed by light. There is no better news for us to hear, nor is there better news for us to share with the world around us. Death replaced with life, hopelessness replaced with hope, and ascending out in shame replaced with a sending out of proclamation that Jesus is indeed alive. But where does that leave us? Where does that leave us as we have looked in on this garden encounter, as we have seen the characters in it rise and fall, try to understand what they have seen, what they have felt, what they have experienced? Well, one of the reasons I use that Tolkien quote about everything sad coming untrue is actually because we aren't there yet. This garden isn't the final garden. It may be coming untrue, and we may be in the process of that, but we aren't there yet, and we know we aren't there yet. We know that because while we still rejoice that Jesus has risen, while we still celebrate that he has conquered death, we also know that death is still a reality. We know that we're still becoming because while Jesus' resurrection gives us hope amid the storms and comfort and peace and security and love, we also know the storms still come. And we know because while Jesus tells us, as he told Mary, to proclaim to the world that he is risen, the world still rejects us when we say it. 
We are not in the final garden. We have not yet made it. And as I was thinking about this this week, I I realized how much I was reminded of this um, when I look at the garden of our house. When we moved into our house, it was in a pretty bad state, the garden. Now, caveat, I'm not blaming former residents. (laughs) This is a curate's house, so former curates here have tended the garden. This is not a critique of their gardening skills. I think it was just been in a bad state for a very long time. They chopped down lots and lots of trees. It was a real jungle when we moved in. And for the last year, we've been working as much as we can to clear the garden, to clear away the weeds, to get rid of the trees in order to create space to put in plants that that bring life and that bring beauty and that bring joy. And I think we've made pretty good progress, to be honest. But if I look closely, I can still see the weeds. (laughs) We're not there yet. We can still see the weeds growing around the plants that we've put in. We can still see the tree stumps slowly becoming trees again. There is now life in our garden. There is color, there is beauty, there is joy in our garden. But it is not the finished product yet. We have not finished the work. And of course, what the garden needs in order for it to be transformed is a gardener. In our garden, that's the role we've taken on. We've taken on the job of clearing out the bad and the dirt and the weed and the old dead stuff and throwing it away in order to replace it with life with color and with beauty. Well, if Jesus is the good gardener, then that is the work he continues to do in our lives. That is why it is everything sad coming untrue, because we are not there yet. There is still work being done. There is still work the gardener is doing in us, in our lives. There are parts of the gardens of our own hearts that are still shady and need his work, chopping back the branches to bring his light in. There are plants in our garden that still need watering by his hand. His hand that speaks of life and of hope and of joy. Life does conquer death. We know that. We celebrate that. We rejoice in this passage. And so we should because Jesus Christ is risen. But our sadness is still becoming untrue. And it's only when we reach the final garden that we'll one day complete our journey. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have a hope to cling to, no matter what we might yet face. Whatever storms are around us, whatever realities are facing us, we have hope in Jesus, the gardener, who as he turned to Mary and called her by name, does the same with each one of us. The hope, of course, is that this God who created us, who first put us in this garden, Eden, has loved us no matter what we've done, has never given up on us, never forsaken us. Throughout these gardens, he has constantly reached down again and again to be with us and to rescue us. And the hope, of course, then, is that the God who created us, who suffered for us, and who eventually would die for us in our place, in that most horrible of gardens, has defeated the grave. And he has risen victorious over death in order that we would know the fullness of joy in our life, now and in the life that is to come. We rejoice in the good gardener. We rejoice in the fact that he is indeed risen. Alleluia, as the Easter hymn puts it. But we recognize that everything sad is still coming untrue, 
but that because of the cross, because of the resurrection, because of Jesus, we have hope, we have joy, and we have life, for Jesus Christ has risen. Let me pray.